refers to objectives and key results. And it actually has its history going all the way back to the philosophy of Peter Drucker, but really got its birth with Andy Grove at Intel in the 70s and then sort of launched into stardom with Google's adoption of it in the 2000s. And basically what I say is this is the primary goal setting methodology that every organization in the knowledge economy is going to use. And the reason why is it's organized around effectiveness and outcomes instead of productivity and output. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Menzione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders in this forum to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Menzione. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering, where technology leaders come to optimize results through successful partnering. I'm Vince Menzione, your host, and my mission is to help leaders like you achieve your greatest business results by unlocking the leadership principles, best practices, and learnings of the best in the business to help you get partnerships right, optimize for success, and deliver results during this time of intense transformation. For this episode of the podcast, I was excited to welcome Jeremy Epstein, the Chief Marketing Officer of GTM Hub. I had the chance to work with Jeremy at Microsoft. In this episode, Jeremy and I discuss GTM Hub and their platform. And I'm a big proponent of OKRs, Objectives and Key Results, having successfully implemented them for client companies. We also dive into the evolution of business and why mindset, objectives, and key results really matter. In addition, we discuss Jeremy's career journey and his thoughts on cryptocurrencies, a topic he is equally passionate about. If you want to learn more about GTM Hub, the importance of OKRs to the future success of business, and one pioneer's thoughts on crypto, I believe you'll benefit from listening to this episode. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Vince. It's an honor to be here. I am so excited to finally welcome you to Ultimate Guide to Partnering. You and I have known each other for, seems like a century ago that we first met, right? It's been a long time. And, you know, you've had an amazing career, like you launched at Microsoft and you've done so many things since then. So I'm excited for where this discussion leads today. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm excited to, to have it with you. So let's get going, man. Yeah, let's get started. So you are the chief marketing officer at GTM Hub, uh, and you describe yourself as a crypto economist, a Taoist, a vegan, and a blogger, amongst other things. Tell us more about Jeremy. Wow. Well, so yeah, I'm the chief marketing officer at GTM Hub, which is based on the OKR, Objectives and Key Results methodology. We are a results orchestration system for Companies ranging all the way from Adobe, CNN, Societe Generale, all the way down to two, three, five-person SMBs. I call myself a crypto economist because I've been uh, deep in the world of blockchain and crypto economics for the last five years. And I just think this is a new economic paradigm that is being born in front of our very eyes. And I love studying it. A Taoist is sort of a double entendre. So a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization that runs on a blockchain. I happen to think those will be 
in the future, the predominant modes for organizing groups of people. But it's also reference to my appreciation for Lao Tzu and uh, his work on the Tao Te Ching and the Taoist philosophy. Vegan, I've done that for about, I guess, seven or eight years now. That's just for me, it's sort of a mindful eating practice. I've been blogging since 2000, and that's yeah. just sort of how I express my artistic side. I've become a big proponent of OKRs, and I've successfully implemented them both for clients and organizations I've worked with. Can you tell us more about the organization, GTM Hub, and OKRs in general? Sure. Well, OKRs, as I said, re- refers to objectives and key results. And it actually has its history going all the way back to the philosophy of Peter Drucker, but really got its birth with Andy Grove at Intel in the 70s and then sort of launched into stardom with Google's adoption of it in the 2000s. And basically what I say is this is the primary goal-setting methodology that every organization in the knowledge economy is going to use. And the reason why is it's organized around effectiveness and outcomes instead of productivity and output. For the last hundred so years since Henry Ford, you know, invention of the uh, assembly line, we've been focused as an economy on how do you get the most efficiency out of people? How do you make them productive? How do you get output? In a knowledge economy, that doesn't matter. I don't care how much time you work. I care about how much value that you create and the outcomes. So what objectives and key results do is they break it down to a very simple and profound concept, which is set your objective, something emotional, something inspirational that you can get behind, and then get very deliberate about the key results that will indicate whether you've actually achieved that objective. So a very simple example might be, I'm going to get in better shape this year. That's an objective. There's no quantitative. Now, the key results might be, I'm going to bench press 350 pounds. I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to lower my blood pressure or cholesterol or whatever. Depending on the key results you select, that will inform your strategy and tactics and provide you a North Star for what you're going to do for that quarter for that year. And the beautiful thing is it also provides you a filter for what you won't do because OKRs are about as about as much as what you don't do is what you do do. And it allows for aligning large groups of people across an organization against objectives and key results as set at different levels of the organization. So it's extremely powerful. It's a mindset shift that is going to be, I believe, the dominant, if not the sole, but probably the dominant methodology that organizations use because it's so transformative in its potential. So that's really what OKRs do. I discovered them about a year and a half ago. Uh, Oh, sorry. I've known about them a while, but I really did the deep dive about a year and a half ago. And then I came across GTM Hub was introduced to the company. And I realized there's no way to do OKRs at scale without software. And I took a look at this product and I said, oh my God, like this thing is architected. beautifully to support OKRs at scale. And it just makes it that bridge from the industrial economy that we talked about to that knowledge mindset that we talked about makes it possible and uh, available to any size organization. So I jumped on board as the CMO uh, just over a year ago. And since then, we've been focused on our mission, which as we like to say is to prevent organizational hypocrisy, which is that all 
annoying problem where your leaders and executives tell you one thing, but the reality happens in a different way every single day. OKRs prevent that from happening by aligning strategy and execution throughout the organization. That's pretty much pretty much the story of GTM Hub. We've been we raised thirty million dollars back in December wow. from Insight Partners, and we've been growing at a very rapid clip. And uh, you know nearly a thousand customers in about 75 countries around the world. It's exciting to see this because you're right in the middle of a, this massive digital transformation. I love what you had to say here. First of all, people talk about goal setting, right? I think they confuse goal setting with objectives and key results because you could have one objective, but multiple key results underneath that, right? Nested underneath, and they could be assigned to different people. And I think that's some of what the software does. And then you talk about as much about what you don't do and I like to refer to that as maniacal focus. So tell us more about how the software helps or enables that process. Yeah, well, it increases transparency throughout the organization. So I set my OKRs, my team, and the entire organization sets their OKRs. And we have a rhythm. We don't just do it sort of once a quarter or once a year. There's a daily, weekly, monthly, and quarterly rhythm to updating them discussing them, looking at them, asking and, and inquiring and saying, hey, Vince, I have an idea for you. And you say to me, well, Jeremy, that's great. I'm not sure exactly how this fits into my OKR. So either help me understand or I'm not going to do it. Right. And then it allows me to say, wait, Vince, I see what your OKRs. Here's a way I can support you. And it increases the the teamwork, the collaboration, the uh, ability to see relationships that maybe were not visible uh, before, as well as giving you uh, the confidence to look at your massive task list, which we all wake up with every morning, and ask yourself, okay, of the 57 things on my list right now, which one of them is going to move the needle the most? And that's what effectiveness is all about. So the software gives you task management, it gives you reporting, it gives you the ability to see who's doing well, where the problems are in the organization, maybe who's struggling, who needs some help, who's maybe not perfectly aligned, which OKR maybe wasn't well set and maybe could be uh, addressed, where the learning opportunities are, what the relationships are between mine, yours, and other people's OKRs. So you can start to see who's influencing who and moving value through an organization to obviously, you know, achieve the desired outcome, revenue, customer satisfaction, uh, employee retention, whatever it is. Looking for those relationships, providing those filters, adding transparency, bringing accountability, encouraging people to stretch. You know, that's really what the software is designed to support at its very core and all the way up to, you know, thousands of users. You know, it strikes me by what you said that the solution is at the center, but it also relies on and maybe feeds into other technologies and business processes and systems. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about that? How do you think about complementary technologies and how do you think about that integration point? Yeah, great question. And I, I sometimes refer to us as meta SaaS, which I mean is that we have, we spent the last 20 years building up these almost silos of SaaS, you know, as as you know, there's tons of uh, software for for channels and partners. The Martech stack is out of control. You know, the the finance, everyone has their own, but the, it's the relationships between those that are important. As a marketer, you know, one of the things I look like is like, well, what's our cost per opportunity? Well, the opportunity is sitting in my 
you know, marketing automation or in our sales force, the lead sources in our marketing automation and the cost is in our finance system. I want to bring all those together into one view so I can know and I can turn that data into to insight. And that's really what we're seeing as people start to say, OK, I have all the data for each function, but now I need to drive horizontal alignment and horizontal insights. So putting those all together, looking for those interrelationships, you know, that's what the name of the game is, is as we, as we push forward. Sorry, man, I get super jacked up about this sometimes. So no, I, I love it. Like, I love it's not it. a sales pitch. I mean, I guess it is, but I get excited because it's just so awesome. So it relies on all these interconnection points. I'm For assuming sure. APIs are super critical. Partnerships are super critical to success. APIs are mega critical. I mean, we have over 150 that we support right now and an architecture do it but even more critical than that i would argue is the partner channel for us i mean the amount of opportunity for services partners in the okr business is just mind-boggling to me because the fact that you've implemented okr successfully actually actually puts you in rarefied air because okrs may sound simple but they're actually difficult to implement because they require a cultural and mindset shift. Uh-huh. The software is, yes, that's important. <laughs> yes, you can't do it at scale without software. But there's no way you're going to be successful without a services and a partner component. We're the only people in the, play, in the entire industry who don't have a services team, will never have a services team. We just focus on the software. And that's why we have you know, a, the most robust partner channel because like, there's huge opportunity out there to be as as critical to an organization as you can imagine, because a lot of these implementations start off at the top and they're hard to do. They need that external press pressure. And that's where you know the channel comes in. And I mean to, we're we're in massive partner recruitment phase right now and we're just excited to see how much you know they're benefiting from us as well as you know it's mutual and that's what's great about it. Yeah, we can go in so many different directions. And I'm going to come back to another thing you said earlier, but I do want to dive in here on partnerships because that is, we are the ultimate guide to partnering. And you mentioned this massive recruiting. What do you look for in a successful partnership? People who understand that we are moving from this industrial to knowledge mindset, who do believe, I call it okay religion, who've, who've gotten some degree <laughs> of okay religion. Yeah, I, that's the marketer. In I love it. Say. I'm going to reuse yeah. that one. <laughs> exactly. It's your, it's open source. You can have okay, it. Okay, good. Um, I love it. Yeah. So who've bought into the okay religion and recognize that this is a great opportunity to, to be at the heart of the transformation that so many organizations need to do and realize that they have to do it themselves. So, you know, there's there's a, people who have the right mindset and who, like I said, got that okay religion and are willing to put in a little bit of work. Because like we usually say it takes about, you know, anywhere from nine to 12 months to become proficient at OKRs. And even in an OKR software company, I'll tell you, that's the truth for me. I mean, it, the first couple of times I did this, it was really difficult, still difficult, but it was really difficult. But I think partners who understand this is a long-term thing. It's not a quick fix have that ability, understand that, but recognize the transformative superpowers that OKRs represents and want to be a part of that. Um, you know, that's who we're looking for. Awesome. And you said... GTMHub.com slash partners. There you go. Can I Well, absolutely. I was going to ask you that <laughs> next. So how do partners get a, get a hold of you? So yeah, a- GTMHub.com slash partners. Go sign up and we have a whole bunch of resources and, and webinars and white papers and all kinds of stuff that that anyone would need to kind of get started and get engaged and, and benefit, you know, from this. We put a lot of time and money and energy into the partner program and there's plenty more to do. So we're looking for feedback 
it's been growing. I mean, I think the numbers that we grew of 50, already 50%, I think, this quarter, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. That's pretty good. Wow. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you about that. You know, we're coming out of this time like no other vaccination, social distancing, masks, and now hopefully opening up to conferences in person. You've seen this rapid success. Did you expect that? What like what was the trajectory to that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, this this wormhole that we went to went through over the last 14 months or so or, you know, that Star Wars kind of hyperspace kind of scenario um, just accelerated the trends that were already in place. And now we see that, you know, the hybrid workforce is here to stay, uh, for example. And I just saw an article in Bloomberg that said people are quitting their jobs rather than give up their work at home. So that was really mm. interesting to me. That's what surprised me. It was interesting to see nonetheless. But in a hybrid workforce, you know, that old model of, you know, management by walking around or looking how much screen time or FaceTime like that's even further from the reality right now. Nobody cares if you stay late on Friday night. Nobody cares if you're there first thing in the morning, if you are driving the outcomes. So what OKRs do is they rip off the question of who's delivering value, make it transparent for everyone to see. And they say, okay, I don't care where you are. I tell every single person on my team, I don't care where you are. I don't care when you do the work. I just care that the outcomes or what you're focused on. And it's just liberating for people because, you know, it's like, I call it liberation from the tyranny of time. It's just, you get away from that. And now it's like, okay, we all have lives. We all have want flexibility. I say, give it to them. You're a knowledge worker. You're responsible for the outcome. Go for it. That's what OKR is doing. They allow me, I mean, I have, you know, I have team 14 people in like six countries around the world, multiple time zones. And the amount of time I spend really, focus on wondering if they're getting their job done is very limited, which is great. I can see it in my dashboard every single day, anytime I want. And then that gives me the confidence to say, okay, who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to help? And then more importantly, now let me focus on the real strategy, you know, the value added part of my job instead of saying, why isn't this part of the team working? And so it actually has made me a much, much better manager. And I think my team members are much more satisfied because they have clarity. They have alignment. They know how their work contributes to the larger value of the organization. And that's fulfilling even when you're physically distanced from people. You know, I love this alignment. And what struck me from what you said is, you know, we have so many unproductive meetings that we have. Mm. Like, it reminds me that maybe this process might eliminate a lot of that. Is it, do you believe that to be true? God, Vince, it's like I, I wish people believe when I say that you and I didn't come up with a list of questions before this that you could feed me like these alley-oops <laughs> because like one of the things that I love about my job is like I, I, I look at my calendar and I compare it to say I, I had a wonderful time at Microsoft. Don't get me wrong. I loved it, but we had a lot of meetings. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I look at my calendar now and I'm like, man, I have so many blocks of free time. This is fantastic. And it just gives me that free creative space to think about much bigger issues that those are running to meeting to meeting. So that's exactly what it does because it helps everyone stay focused. So it, it, it is sort of that great, I mean, that's what knowledge workers need. They need space for creativity. I tell everybody on my team, if you don't go out for like an hour long walk every single day, you're doing something wrong. Like that's what I want you to do. I want you to spend time away from the computer because I know that's when the good stuff's going to happen. You know, and, and clarity. Like, we all want clarity about what does success look like for me. Yep, yep, exactly. I mean, that's, in fact, it's the number one thing that, you know, I think people have said to me 
that is a struggle for them in terms of the relationship with their with the company and with their managers or their bosses is like I'm not 100% sure on what I need to do every single day. And what I did, we we went through we go through our quarterly OKR planning process. We started off about 2 weeks before the end of the quarter. By the time the first day of the quarter round comes around, everybody knows what they need to do. They understand how they relate to other people. It it creates this organic collaboration and just support and it's it's just it's like i can't explain it it's like it's like you know it's like becoming a parent it's something i just can't explain to you it's just you, you experience it and you're like wow this is pretty pretty wild so it's it's really really refreshing hard to get there but worth it once you are there you know you mentioned something a word that is top of mind for me it's center for me mindset mindfulness and mindset and you talked about, you inferred that organizations struggle with their mindset. Can you dive in a little bit with me on this? Because I believe it's fundamental to the success of partnerships. It's fundamental to organizational success. Can you share a little bit more about your thoughts there? Yeah, sure. It's funny you say that. We actually have, a, I, I sometimes refer to OKRs as organizational meditation. Because in meditation, you come back to center, right? You come back to the breath or what have you. And organizations don't necessarily have that self-awareness of what is the organization doing. But if your mindset is, look, we need to be mindful about what we're doing. OKRs provide you the framework for being deliberate about the choices that you're making and allowing. Look, we all get distracted. I mean, you have 55 notifications popping up and, you know, your kids come into your Zoom meeting or whatever it is. We all have that. You'll drift away from center. But OKRs force you or give you, force is the wrong word, give you the ability or the, the grounding to say, wait a second, let me take a deep breath. Let me come back to center. Let me do that. And when everybody throughout an organization is collectively taking that deep breath every single day, then they're all snapping back into alignment and you're not having that organizational shift. So it's that, that shift and the mindset, like I said, moving away from it's not about time. It's about value. You know, I was thinking discipline, like, but discipline in the right way, like yes. creating order around yep. our thoughts and order around how we organize. I think if you ever decide you want to give up this partner thing, you could come be like GTM Hubs Evangelist, man. You're doing a great <laughs> job for us. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> we'll talk. <Okay>. You know, <laughs> if this partner thing doesn't work out, although apparently you're crushing it, so I'm not surprised. Well, we're going to talk. We'll talk more, I, and I've got to have you back on this podcast because we have so much ground to cover today, and I want to be, be mindful. Happy. I want our listeners to hear the full story because you have a great story. And I'm going to take you back in time a little bit here. I'm going to put us back to the future a little bit. I recall when we worked together at Microsoft, you had this early passion for social. I mean, we had just, Microsoft had just invested in Facebook. And like, we were all just kind of dabbling, right? None of us were, we were kind of awkward and dabbling. And then, you know, you, you had some convictions around that. And mm -hmm. can you tell us more about that story? Yeah, I, I can. It's, it's not... It's not the best story for the person, but I will change the name to protect the guilty. So I was in a meeting once in uh, Redmond. There were about 25 people there. And, uh, you know, we're going around the room. This was probably, I guess, 2008 at some point. We're going around the room trying to come up with like, the question was, I was on the partner marketing team. How can we more effectively build relationships with our partners? So I pipe up and I was, you know, not junior at that point, but not senior either. And I say, you know... There's this new thing called Facebook. It might be a good way for us to 
build a relationship with partners through that channel. And I kid you not, the guy leading the meeting gets up and I promise you word for word, he says, quote, that's the dumbest fucking idea I ever heard. Uh. And he was like, it's not built on our platform. It's coded in PHP. We can't control the content. Why would we ever do that? And I was like, not only embarrassed and humiliated, but I walk out of that meeting, my head was, you know, not my strongest day at work ever. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I don't know what the future of marketing is. And far be it for me to say that Microsoft has not been one of the most successful organizations on the planet. However, I'm pretty confident that this social media thing is going to be pretty important. And I was like, Microsoft's kind of like an aircraft carrier that wants to go left. And I'm a guy in a canoe who's saying, let's go right. And I was like, hmm, that's not going to work. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to go out and see if I can figure it out on my own. So I basically decided after five and a half wonderful years, minus that one day, I had an opportunity to go explore the frontier of how the arrival of social media would affect the, the function of marketing. So I left the company, I left Microsoft, sadly, and I started a company called Never Stop Marketing, which I like to say is not just a company, but a way of life, another mindset thing. And basically, the, the purpose of the organization was to look at not how to use Twitter and Facebook for advertising, but how does the function of marketing change because of the arrival of these two-way conversation platforms? And, you know, you were early, right? People, you know, we talk about Gary Vee and others right now, but Never Stop Marketing was fairly early, and you became a thought leader. I recall you were speaking at many conferences. Tell us more about what was next. Yeah, so I did that for a couple of years. My favorite part of that story is about two years into it, I got a call from the head of worldwide marketing training at Microsoft. And she said, you know, there's a lot of people interested in this social media thing. Do you want to be our global lead for instructing on social media marketing and training? And I was like, well, you could have had it for free, but you want to pay through the nose? Fine, we'll do it your way. <laughs> you know. So they sent me around the world, 25 countries. I probably talked to, you know, more marketers than anyone but the CMO of Microsoft. And that was great. Did that for about three and a half years. And it was actually on a partner-focused webinar. I was doing training for Microsoft's partner team that one of the partners comes to me and he says, hey, you and a friend of mine basically talk about the arrival of social media in the exact same way. Would you like to talk to him? So I was like, sure, you know, I'll talk to anybody. That'd be fine. Puts me in touch with a guy named Raji Thomas, who's the CEO of a company called Sprinkler. Yep. Calls me up. And the first thing he says to me is, I read your blog. You need to come work for me. And I'm like, who are you, man? And he says, look, I'm building an enterprise social media management platform. I need a marketer, a lead marketer who understands community and social. Will you come work for me? So it was very similar to my GP, GTM hub experience. I went up to New York, sat down, looked at the software. And even in its earliest iterations, I said to myself, oh, my gosh, this guy is building a platform to do Everything I've been thinking about in terms of how customers are now empowered, how we have to be able to respond, that every touch point is a brand moment. And that was Sprinkler. So I joined Sprinkler uh, after about three and a half years at Never Stop Marketing. I hibernated the company, joined Sprinkler as the first uh, VP of marketing when we had about 30 people and we just done our Series A 20 million. And I rode that uh, wave until we were uh, unicorn level and 1,400 people about four and a half years later. So uh, very privileged to be a part of that team and just really exciting to be at the epicenter of that uh, 
you know, social media led transformation. What an amazing ride. And for those who don't know Sprinkler, I mean, I know it from being, I call it social listening, right? In many right. respects. And I mm-hmm. think about like when I'm having trouble with Comcast and I can't get a, somebody to yep. respond, I, I send a tweet out. And it's amazing how I get a response back right away. Yep. That yeah. comes through Sprinkler. Yes, exactly. it does. Yes, it does. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you have been an early, I call it an early sage, uh, for lack of a better word here, right? I mean, we talk I about- tell my kids you said yeah, that. They don't believe Well, yeah. <laughs> Listen, they will come back, by the way. Once sure. they reach okay, a certain good, age, good to know. there is hope. There is hope here. But, you know, we talked about being into social early, at least mm-hmm. early for me. Mm-hmm. And then next was crypto, right? And cryptocurrency. You know, we can invite, we can devote an entire episode here. I think this topic alone is, could be a standalone episode, maybe a series mm-hmm. of episodes. Can you tell us more about how you got interested in crypto and where that led you to? Sure, sure. Yeah. So I first heard about Bitcoin in 2013 when I was reading a, a blog from uh, a blog post of Fred Wilson, who's a venture capitalist. And he was like, oh, there's this thing called Bitcoin. You should get into it. So I was like, all right, whatever. You know, if Fred told me to sell my kids, I'd think about it. So I said, all right, I'll go buy, you know, a couple. And it was like $80. So I bought a few. Now the price spiked up a couple months later to like a thousand. So I was like, that's it. I'm out. I pretty much sold everything. And I didn't really think about it for a couple of years because I was at Sprinklers. So by the time I'm sort of finished with the mission at Sprinkler, you know, mid, early, mid 2016, I said to myself, all right, I have these Bitcoin. Like, what exactly are these things anyway? <laughs> and I basically spent six months just reading everything I could about Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto economics, consensus algorithms. I mean, going as deep as I could. And I just had a, a moment of epiphany. I still remember it. I was on my couch and I just shot up and I said, part of my French here, holy shit, this is a tsunami of disruption and basically no one sees it's coming. And I was thinking, this is just so big. And I said, this is what I need to do for the next couple of years until I really understand it or maybe even forever. And I just dove into the space. I had the privilege to work with some of the top startups in the crypto space. I wrote three books, gave a bunch of keynotes. I had the opportunity to brief three-star generals at the Pentagon on two different wow. occasions about Bitcoin blockchain. That was pretty cool. It's right down the hall from Secretary of Defense. I do have to admit that was cool. That had to be cool. Wrote a bunch of articles. I probably have like a thousand blog posts on the topic. Just exploring what does it, and it's sort of similar to what happened with social media, which is what does the arrival of decentralizing, de- disintermediating technology powered by crypto assets mean for the world. And of course, I don't know the answer, but I've just spent the last five years exploring different industries and different functions and new business models just to kind of kind of understand it. And it's just been remarkable. And I'm I'm beyond passionate. You're right. I could spend three days talking about crypto with you. I'm super in fact I run a fund today. I still am a fund manager. I have two roles basically and that GTM hub knows that. Um, and what's beautiful about it is they don't care because they say, look, if you hit your OKRs, who cares whether you do it in a, one day a week or six days a week? So right. basically, I manage the fund and my, my investors don't care because they're like, as long as you're giving me returns, <laughs> who cares if you do it in an hour or five days? So it gives it affords me the ability to pursue both of my passions around OKRs and around crypto simultaneously 
but yeah, crypto is, it's, we could definitely do it. I'm happy to come back if you want to talk about that. Well, we will, we will, but I'm going to ask you two questions around crypto. One is around what the future looks like. I mean, some of us understand some of the premise and the foundational. What do you think the future looks like? But what do you think is happening now? And where do you see the future growth? <laughs> I mean, I, I think, look, we're, you know, just like obviously crypto right now for most people is either perceived as a speculative asset or used by criminals. And I think the criminal story is overblown or just highly energy consumptive. Now, I'm not saying there's no energy being consumed and I'm not saying no criminals use it, but I would also say to people, look how much criminals use the existing financial system and how much energy is associated with that. And then talk, call me when there's like serious comparison between the two, because right now there's not. But what we're going through is it reminds me back in the dot-com era. You know, we had Pets.com and Webvan and all these other things that, you know, may not have been the best idea. But just because they were terrible ideas doesn't mean the revolution wasn't there to stay. And I suspect we're in that same part of sort of that, you know, hype cycle excitement right now around crypto. That being said, when you pull that away, you are seeing the emergence of these totally new business model, models that were impossible without, you know, a blockchain behind them. So these decentralized autonomous organizations that are global 24-7 permissionless, meaning anybody can join. You know, we're going to have, there's 2 billion people on, in the planet, on the planet who don't even have a bank account because it's not profitable for banks to serve them. Those people need to have a way to store value and transact in a safe and secure way. Blockchains will be able to afford them that. It's going to lower risk, lower cost, and lower friction in terms of doing transactions. Like if you've ever sent a wire internationally, it's an absolute pain in the butt. And it's expensive and it takes time. If you've ever sent money over a blockchain, you'd be like, wait a second, it's game over. It literally takes a few minutes and it costs almost nothing, even when you have higher fees. So you start to see, I made a trade the other day. It was, uh, what was it, Memorial Day. So I was looking at my, my traditional stock portfolio and I put in a trade on my broker on Saturday night. And it said, oh, we will execute this trade on Tuesday when the market's open and I'm yeah. like, markets are closed since when? And I was like, Oh, <laughs> in the other world, markets closed because crypto is 24 seven. So why not? So you're going to see 24 seven markets. You're going to see global, you know, relationships, all types of new organizations, new business models, just like we saw with the arrival of dot com. And it's just going to take a while as some of the technology, I mean, it's sort of like that dial up modem phase of the internet where once you get online, you see the potential getting online is a pain in the butt because your mom's picking up the phone and knocking you off the modem, that kind of, at least that's what happened to me. So I think we're in a similar phase in crypto. And I think the, I tell people internet was sort of the appetizer. <laughs> crypto economics is the main course because it's about value being transferred, not just information. And I think that's really, really the, the exciting part to me and to, to see what's happened. Now, ultimately, I think we talk about stakeholder capitalism and blockchains enable true, you know, protected, secure, sovereign stakeholder capitalism in a way that was literally impossible, you know, a decade ago. So that's kind of exciting to watch. Dig in up with me a little bit on that, that term, stakeholder capital. Yeah. So basically what blockchains are is they, they're community-owned networks. Right. So as opposed to Facebook, which is a network owned by Mark Zuckerberg and a few other people, a blockchain is owned by its members. So when you have a Bitcoin or you have some Ether, 
you are actually a part owner of that network. And therefore, you have a financial stake in the success of that. So you, you help pay for the security of the network. But at the same time, you benefit from the growth of the network. When I joined Facebook, I got some value out of it. When I got some, when I joined some LinkedIn, I got some value out of it, but nothing financial out of it. I got, you know, marginal. And then, you know, I don't care if a million people in Bangladesh, no disrespect to Bangladesh, join Facebook because I don't know anyone in Bangladesh, right? But if a million people in Bangladesh join a crypto economic network like Ethereum or, or Bitcoin or something else by acquiring one of the tokens that represents ownership of that, the value of the entire network goes up and I do benefit as well as they benefit. So we all have a skin in the game in the growth of these publicly owned networks as opposed to the privately owned networks where the growth of the network uh, accrues value to a few people, the growth of blockchain based networks uh, accrues value to every single person who has an ownership stake in that, regardless of how large it is, if that makes sense. I know it's a big change. Yeah, yeah, I know it does. It does. Now, there's been a little volatility. There's been some volatility, maybe a lot of volatility in the last couple few weeks. We don't like to be time sensitive with the outcome, but this is, we're talking in early June of 2021. What, what do you think has caused some of that? Honestly, I don't even care. I mean, you know, it's like I tell people, zoom out. Just zoom out and look at the charts over the last five and 10 years. It's up and to the right. And either you buy in, it's like the okay religion. It's a mindset. Either you buy into a crypto mindset and you believe that this, these community owned networks are the future or you don't. And if you do, volatility here or there is meaningless. I don't really care. So speculating as to why a 24 seven global market with millions of actors is behaving in a certain way. Like, I don't know. I just, my thesis and my conviction hasn't really changed. We're still at the early stage. There's still plenty of time. You know, there's still, it's still relatively immature. So what happens week to week? You know, I tell people crypto is the, is like having skin in the game on becoming Zen. Cause you see a 30, 40% drop in your portfolio and you're like, I don't even care. <laughs> just doesn't even affect you. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you brought up Zen. Because I wanted to peel back on you a little bit. As you might know from listening to other episodes, I'm fascinated with career journeys and how people got to this spot in their life. We talked a little bit about your career journey, but is there one thing that Jeremy is encoded for or what brings you Zen? You know, I think that's a great question. I, I think I'm encoded. Maybe this might be ego, so maybe it's not bringing me Zen. I like being on the frontier. Mm. There's something about the exploration, you know, I spent when I was in my 20s, I spent three years living abroad, backpacking through Europe and Asia. And, you know, I'm a traveler at heart and I love people and I love hearing their stories and I love just understanding things that way. So, you know, I like to be on that edge and understand what's happening because the reality of these disruptive changes or the, the way I interpret it, disruptive changes is that you have a choice. You can either let the change happen to you or you can embrace the change, force the change upon yourself and ride the wave as it's happening. And if the change is, uh, if the arrival of the change is inevitable, my personal philosophy is I'd rather be out there, you know, learning how to embrace it. And the best way to do that is get out ahead of it, understand it when it's still young. So by the time that the, the wave really makes landfall, as it were, I'm mixing metaphors all over the place here. That's fine. I do it all the time. Thanks, man. You know, I think it's just it's just a choice. I mean, it's a it comes back to that mindset. It's 
these exponential technologies are continuing to arrive and I'd rather just be it. So I think what gets me jacked up is being on the frontier, making those discoveries and talking to the people who are out there on that edge of that, you know, Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm adoption curve thing. So Jeremy is an explorer. I like it. Yeah. It works for me. And so was there one piece of advice? Like you've had so many steps in this journey, this exploration. Like, was there a best piece of advice that you've brought along on the journey? Can I give you two? Absolutely. So my first boss, I lived in Tokyo for a year and I had a, I was working. This was early days of internet, what we call internet marketing. I had a boss. He was Canadian, but he lived in Japan. And I was, it was like my first job. And he says, well, Jeremy, I have two pieces of career advice for you. I said, all right. He goes, number one, only work with people you like, which I've realized is harder said than done. Or yeah, easier said than done, I should say. That's number one. He goes, number two, never believe your own bullshit, which I'm always terrified of, especially as a marketer from the DC area, because it's just so easy to do that. So those are the two I always refer back to. It's like, okay, do I like this person? Am I enjoy working with them? And am I believe in my own BS? I love that. I love that. And the same person gave you the two great yeah, pieces of advice. Just, we were in a taxi in, in Tokyo. He's like, here you go. And I was like, perfect. And I've, you know, 20 some years later, I still talk about it. I love it. I love it. So we're going to have a little fun here. I, okay. you know, I was thinking about Jeremy, the Explorer. And I was okay. thinking about like, you know, I recently saw Tom Hanks and Castaway again after so oh, many nice. years. Nice. You know, when you're maybe, maybe something happened like along the way and you're now stuck on an island like Please. Tom Hanks was in that movie. All right. But you you have a playlist. You can bring you can bring your iPhone or maybe some other device. And Zoom. Zoom. Yeah, Zoom would be great. Probably have a longer battery life, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but you can only take five songs along on the playlist. Oh, wow. And you're going to listen to these songs. And they're going to be the only five songs you're going to listen to day in and day out for the foreseeable future. What would those five songs be and why? Oh, wow. Okay. I think the first one is Uncle John's Band by the Grateful Dead. Um, nice. Because there's a, the first lyrics are the first days are the hardest days. Don't you worry anymore. And that's provided me comfort, especially at times in my life where I felt maybe a little alone. So if I'm on an island, I can imagine having that emotion. I like Bob Marley. So I'm going to say anything by him, but let's call it jamming is good. Kind of gives you, you know, I'm on the island scene there. So I think feeling feeling islandy might be good and also you know enjoying life or being appreciative for what i have even though i'm a castaway on an island i'm also become i've gotten bigger into uh jazz and blues recently so probably i'll say like duke ellington maybe a train just something to keep it a little bit that way and the, my fallback i'm a big classical music guy so i would say there are two one of them is uh romeo and juliet by prokofiev i just think that's a powerful piece and then my all-time favorite and it's very cliche but beethoven's ninth because it's just first of all it's long so you can use it for a while but uh it's really good stuff and i speak german so i like being able to sing along with the german parts that's an eclectic list i have to tell you uncle john's band I yeah. love it. A little Grateful Dead. We got Marley jamming. We got Duke Ellington A Train, Romeo and Juliet by right. Prokofiev. He's Pro Russian composer. Uh, yeah. And Beethoven's Night. Beethoven's Night. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This is amazing. Yeah. It's electric enough that you get some variety in there as well. Well, that's what I figured. If I'm on a if I'm on an island, like you want to have variety because you might have different moods, especially where you are. Well, this was amazing. 
Jeremy, I want to thank you. We have just scratched the surface. I am going to have you back here again. I promise our listeners that. And I've got, I've got another fun question for you, so I'm going to wait for okay, that next one to do. Oh, okay. You're going to hold. That's a teaser. I am. I am. Who's the marketer on the call now? That's me, right? <laughs> that I'm going to keep our listeners hanging that on a little true. bit, right? That is true. But I want that to thank true. you, A, for your generosity and coming here today and for your friendship. I don't know if I'll embarrass you by saying this, but you're the first phone call I get on my birthday every year. And I just think that that is a, I just think it's an an amazing thing. Um, I'm I'm always touched by that. And I just want to thank you. It tells me a little bit about you as a person. That's very kind. I appreciate, I appreciate your friendship. Appreciate you coming to the ultimate guide to partnering today. Thank you. Thank you. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like comment, Tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Ultimate Partnerships. Ultimate Partnerships helps you get the most results from your partnerships. Get partnerships right, optimize for success, deliver results. For more information, go to ultimate-partnerships.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzione. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.